Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Leading to the statue of David, the series of unfinished sculptures that lined the corridor on the way to the, the sculpture of David. And so along the way on each side, there are these, these unfinished sculptures that, that are lining the path to the sculpture of David. They're almost like uh, petrified, trapped, if you will, prisoners still yet in the material that they would be carved from. Uh, their, their forms are a little bit identifiable. There are pictures of them. You can Google it later and see it for yourself. But there are pictures and forms that are identifiable in them. You might see a sculpted out noticeable hand on one or perhaps the, the torso of a body of another or on some there's just anything that's recognizable. The only thing that's there is maybe a, a, a sculpt out protruding leg or a particular part of a head that you would be able to recognize that has some form of semblance uh, to it. And so the statues were there originally to intended there to adorn the tomb of Pope Julius II. But they are unfinished. They're unfinished. None of them are to completion, but they all have just parts and portions that are identifiable as being complete. And it's almost as these sculptures, as many have tried to describe it, that they are trying to break free and become what they were intended to be. I mean, you see an arm that's manifested there, and it's almost like there's just more that's wanting to come forth but not quite arrived at that place yet. So just trying to break free to become what they were intended to be, but they're stuck in that stone. They're stuck in that, that material. They are unfinished. Michelangelo called them captives. If you look it up on Google, that's what you'll want to search for. They are the captives of the way that he described them. And they are captives precisely because they did not receive enough chiseling from the master in order to become what he had intended for them to be. And so I find a little bit of a spiritual parallel in our own lives. And here's scripture for those that are nervous. We'll kind of soothe you down here a little bit. Luke 4 and verse 18, Jesus, when he had went to the synagogue and they handed him the book, he read from a passage of Isaiah and he would conclude saying that today this is fulfilled in your ears. And this is part of the passage. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are Bruised. This was uh, largely, we could even say, this was largely his first sermon that he ever preached. And he stated that his mission, with no uncertain terms, his mission was to set the captives free. Now, I think for most part, when people think about captives being set free, that they are thinking along the lines of judicial terms, of taking someone that is actually and literally imprisoned and setting them free from the bonds or from their imprisonment. And no doubt there is probably a certain amount of that statement that, that gives merit to that type of thinking. But also, whenever we think about setting captives free, we're thinking about this great salvation that we have received to help us get a spiritual freedom. And I understand this morning that God isn't just going around and salvation is not like a get-out-of-jail-free card, okay? I understand that. But there is in a certain instance that Christ has made us free. And perhaps it relates very well, him setting the captives free. Maybe if we could look at it through the artistic terms that Michelangelo even described, that Jesus didn't just die to get you and I off the hook. Amen. It just died to get you and I off the hook. But he also died to resurrect the person that we were destined to be before sin distorted the image. Amen. 
he, he died, he, he resurrected again so that he could somehow resurrect a man inside of us that were destined to be before sin ever entered the picture. But no, well, God had an intended plan even for Adam and Eve, but sin coming in distorting the picture ever since that time, he's been trying to get humanity back to a place and a picture, amen, of what he had destined for them prior to sin entering the lives of humanity. Amen. And here's the great thing about God. God is not just concerned about your spiritual man. Everything we do, we spiritualize. All right? We do. I mean, we, we take even uh, portions of Scripture, and if it's just too practical, we'll spiritualize it so that we can feel like it's making sense to us. But God didn't just come to save the spiritual man or help the spiritual man, but he also our emotional man. Yeah, our physical man. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, I don't know if they, this is working today or not. I didn't look behind me. Is it working, guys? It is. Thank you so much. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the Bible states those words right before you, and I'm going to read it in my Bible. And the very God of peace sanctifieth you, sanctify you holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The salvation, what Christ did for us wasn't just a spiritual thing, although it was part of that, but he also wants to do something for our bodies and our souls, our emotions, all these things together. So he sets us free spiritually, yes, but he also sets us free or should at least emotionally as well. Now, there are people that are struggling and walking in relationship with God's today that have been set free spiritually, but they've not let him, not yet quite let him into the arena of their emotional sphere. Amen. And so there is the struggle going on in their life because they've been spiritually set free, but there's still a lot of emotional baggage they've not yet let the Lord untie and unravel. Amen. From their past life. And not only that, relationally and also intellectually, amen, we're held captive by many things, folks. If we can just get real today, yes, there is an adversary, yes, there is a devil, but there are things outside of the classification of the devil that we are held captive by. Amen. There are things like what we perceive as our imperfections that hold us captive. We have personal insecurities that keep us bound and captive. There may be some sitting here this morning, maybe it's something from the past or as recent as yesterday. There are feelings of guilt, anxiety. I'm not trying to make anybody uncomfortable today, but sometimes before you can tell where you need to operate, the doctor pushes around your stomach and says, does that hurt? And if it doesn't, it's okay. But if you say, ow, it's like we need to look a little further into this. Amen. Sometimes we're held captive by our own expectations. Sometimes because of lies or mistakes of the past. So whenever Jesus died to set us free, he died to set us free, folks. I'm telling you, from all of that, the whole man. The whole man. And so... What happens then, we get this mind frame that God can only deal and contend with the spiritual aspect of me and not the emotional and not the physical aspect of me. All right? And, uh, and you know right away that if you have, if you have uh, some difficulties and problems that require a professional mental help, you need to, you need to seek that out. Or, or, or professional physical help, you need to seek that out. But in the process of doing all that, don't just nix God totally out of the picture because he's pretty good at some of those things too. Amen. Someone say amen. And so he died to set us free from all of these because he, he, he don't just come to set us free from who we were, but he also sets us free to become who we were meant to be. He sets us free so that we can become who we were meant to be. And so salvation, when we consider salvation, being baptized in Jesus' name, repenting, being filled with the Holy Ghost, that is not the end goal. All right? right. Someone's saying, no, you just...
just you just topsy turvy everything you preach around. No, that is not the end goal. That's a real good starting point, but that's a horrible ending point. That's not the goal. The salvation is that new beginning. That's where we begin. We experience the new work, the new birth of uh, of the Lord. But God goes on if we will open ourselves and allow it to continue a work in our life. And many times he uses our circumstances, no matter what they be, whether you label them good, bad, negative, or positive, he uses our circumstances to chisel us into his image and after his likeness. And by doing so, he is setting us free from ourselves. Someone say amen. See, because here's the thing. We may call ourselves Christian and still be held captive by many things. Amen. And what usually happens, it's kind of like Michelangelo's captives. We, because we are Christian and we are still held captive by several different things, what, what the, the result of all this usually comes about, why this all happened, rather I should say, is because we aborted the master's chiseling before he was finished. Amen. We aborted the master's chiseling before he was finished. We, we decided, here it goes. We decided that the curriculum that God had for us, his school of hard knocks, maybe was a little more intensive than what we really wanted. A little more invasive or intrusive than what we really cared for. Because the lessons that God teaches in his school are not always what we expect. Oh, yes, I, I, I've come along in years enough to understand that people call God's hand whenever he reacts or acts like they think he shouldn't react or act. To the degree that if they are not founded in who he is and the character that he has, they will many times just totally disengage from God because he did what I thought he wouldn't do. Or he acted or responded or allowed something into my life that I thought he would never respond. It's kind of the proverbial like book. I think it is uh, that uh, Charles Wendall or it was either one of those other guys. Whenever God doesn't make sense. Amen. But what happens is God many times puts us through circumstances and through experiences. And in doing so, he's developing his character in us. His character in us. And so whenever it's kind of opposite to what we think God would do, and God might be trying to get his character in us. That doesn't harmonize with humanity. His character doesn't many times harmonize with humanity. And so what that brings us to then today, a subject of matter, is a gentleman in the Scripture by the name of David whose life was an open book to God. And as we read through the Scriptures many times, also an open book to you and I as well. When we read through the Psalms, David many times is sharing his thoughts, his feelings, where he's presently at in his life. Uh, he's not trying to embellish it by no means. It's just brass tacks. This is what I'm feeling. God, why are the wicked, you know, successful? And it seems like the godly are not. He's just, he's just, he's just expressing and sharing some real feelings unto the Lord. But of this man in Acts 13, 21, the Bible states these words, kind of a look back. And afterward, Acts 13, 21, and afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto to them Saul, the son of Cush, Kish, with Cush in the Old Testament, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised him up unto them, David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Now, interestingly, before we are introduced to David, before we can even be introduced to David, we must be introduced to Saul. Got to be introduced to Saul, the first king of Israel. Because David shows us the success of how to respond, how to do it, and Saul shows us how it shouldn't be done. Amen. 
So this is how it shouldn't be done. And so we're introduced to Saul first because when we look at David, we look at David and, and, and he's letting God work upon his heart and doing so is just a lifetime adventure for David, a lifetime a decision to allow God to come into his life, move the things that need to be moved, whittle on the things that need to be whittled. But whenever we come to Saul, Saul is a dropout from God's school of hard knocks. Saul is a dropout. Amen. He's only into a few years of his reign and he drops out. We read the Old Testament passages that Saul's son Jonathan had attacked a Philistine garrison in Gibeah. The, the, the Philistines' armies have gathered around to the number of about 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And the Bible said they were people as the sea uh, in multitude to fight. The Bible says at this time Israel had no, had no blacksmiths to make weapons. Only the Philistines had them. And so only Saul and Jonathan had a sword and a spear. Amen. And all of the rest of Israel are fighting with farm tools. All right. The Israelites are scattered in fear until Saul is left with only about 600 men. The prophet Samuel hasn't shown up yet at Gilgal as he said he would to offer a sacrifice and that's when Saul offered up his own sacrifice because he was impatient over the man of God not showing up and this is what the scripture reads in 1 Samuel 13 13 and Samuel said to Saul thou hast done foolishly thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God which he commanded thee for now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever but now thy kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought him a man after his own heart and the Lord have commanded him to be captain over his people because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee in other words he's looking for a man after his own heart with David God is sitting on the throne of David's heart but with Saul Saul is sitting on the throne of his own heart Amen. He's the ultimate, I'm king, me, king. That who thinks he can please God by doing what he thinks is best. Right? What he thinks is best rather than what God commands to do. So he's living his life saying, I know better than what God is telling me. And living his life according to that mantra i'll do what i want to do what i think is best because i think what i think is best is best and so i'm going to live life according to that measure according to that way but with that being said then saul is constantly being weighed in the balance if you will over the next several years amen of his reign amen because god has given him a decision amen to allow me either to work in your life Amen. Do something in your life. Receive the commands or do your own thing. Because here it is. Here's just a little nugget of truth we need to stick in our minds this morning. The ultimate test of obedience is what we do with the commands of God that we do not understand. Let me state that again. The ultimate test of our obedience is what we do with the things of God we do do not understand. Let me break down like this. Every man or woman in Scripture that ever obeyed a command of God didn't always base their obedience because they understood what God was telling them in that moment. They did it because they knew He was God. Huh? Noah in a desert place, building the monstrosity of an ark. There's a lot there I don't understand. Rain of that proportion had never happened. Never. And so there's a lot there I don't understand. But his obedience was, I'm doing this, although I don't understand it, because it's God that's saying it. See, some people, they just... They leverage or they, they, they mark up, I was obedient to God. But if you look back over your life, and the only time you was ever obedient to God is when you understood what God was doing. Are you truly obedient to God? Let me reshape it. Can you obey God when you don't understand God? Oh, the school of hard knocks just came to order, didn't it? And so that, though, was a crisis point. For Saul, 
God says, do this. Totally, and we'll get to it, you, you just totally annihilate all of the Amalekites. All right? And for the other measure, when you go to make sacrifice, you wait until Samuel gets there. But all these things are, I mean, what's the, you know, what's the big deal? Maybe start going in the back of Saul's mind. He's late. What's the big deal if I step in? Is someone hearing me right now? Amen. Look, look at the story of 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3. Look, look, look what the scripture says concerning the Amalekites. 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3. Samuel also said unto Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. There's a lot just in those two phrases. I've anointed you with purpose and reason. Now hear what your higher authority has to say into your life. Listen, when God places his spirit in you, it doesn't come very shortly without words of instruction after that moment. Everybody doing okay? Man, I just, we're just plugging along here, just plugging along. And so he goes on and says, here's what the Lord says. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now, here's the instruction. Go and smite Amalek, utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not. But, the Bible says, slay both man and and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and asses. Now, the Amalekites has been some arch enemy of the Israelites for years. Where they came out of Egypt, this was one of the first enemies and adversaries that, that came to oppose the Israelites. They had been uh, around for, from this point in time, back for about 400 years. They have been a very large proponent and enemy against Israel. And so God's instruction to Saul is this. This is the command of the Lord. Destroy them utterly. Destroy them completely. Do the job. But Saul chooses to do his own way. And the Bible says, whenever Samuel finally comes and says, did you take care of business? Did you destroy all the Amalekites? Oh, yeah, sure I did, yeah. He said, well, what's the lowing of the ox? What this is I hear in the background? And the Bible says that Saul had spared the best and all that was good. Well, whose eyes was all that good in? He spared the best. Who said that was the best? God or Saul? Folks, we're barking up a very high tree if we think what we categorize as good and best meets the measure of what God categorizes as good. Isaiah taught me that his ways are higher than my ways. And his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And so he said, well, you know, yeah, we took care, but that which was best, that which is good, we, we, we spared all of that. Now, here is the cardinal truth. Amen. We might have said it a thousand times throughout the apostolic faith, but I think it's good to say yet again this morning, partial obedience is still disobedience. Let me rewind. Partial obedience is still disobedience. And the Bible says the response of 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. He said, you reject the word of the Lord. And let me put it in the measures that we started with today. You rejected the work of the Lord. And so I can't finish my work in you. Huh? Uh, uh, you, you re At this point in time, we might got the protrusion uh, and the semblance of a leg here. Okay, back to the captives. He said, but since you reject the work of the Lord, then you have tied my hands from finishing the work in your life. And so, in certain means, 
We have on daily basis, we come in here sometimes, and I use this word very gingerly and to no disrespect, we come in here with people that are handicapped because they have a good leg, but they've not yet got their arm. Is someone hearing me? Or they got a good hand, but they're, they're deficient in having their head. If I can say it like this, sometimes we have good feet, we have good direction, but we don't have a head for any vision. Or just, just equally as, as a hardship is having the eyes and the ears to see and to hear, but not having nobility to accomplish. Because we checked out before the bell rang for the school session. Someone say amen. Now look, look, is everybody doing all right? You all doing all right back there? Okay, just making sure. 1 Samuel 15, verse 27. Look what the scripture says as it goes on to say. And as Samuel turned, as Samuel turned away, about to go away here, he laid upon the skirt of his mantle, all right, and rent it. And Samuel said unto him to Saul, the Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent for he is not a man that he should repent. Then he said, I have sinned, Saul says. Yet honor, look at those words right there. Yet honor me now, I pray thee before the elders of my people and before Israel and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. So Samuel turned again after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Look, look what Saul's looking at. He said, honor me now before Israel. This has been Saul's besetting sin problem from the beginning. He's more concerned about his image before other people than he is his heart before God. Let me tell you, there is liberation within that this morning. There are so many Christians that are living as captives because of how they appear before other people and they're sacrificing how they appear before God for how they would like to appear before people and they're living defeated lives. Living defeated lives because they would rather protect their image before others than their image before God. Yet when we stand before God someday, he has not taken, if you will, this, this long list of how they thought of you or that one. It's going to be what God thinks about us. And so I think it would serve the reason if that's what it's going to be then, then I need to just somehow cater to that now. Cater to that now. People will act, react, do, perform for themselves how they are perceived by people. In the church, out of the church, people they don't even know. The fact of the matter is we will do things in our own lives for people we don't even know more than we'll do for the God that saved us. Don't tell me. Because the moment you walk out the door, you can go to a place you've never been before. And people have this thing going in their mind. I wonder what they think of what I wear, how my hair's done, how's this? Well, does it hurt? Does it hurt? Where does it hurt? Does that hurt? God help us. So at the midpoint of Saul's reign here already, he's just rejected God's chiseling in his life. And so God, in turn, we see it as rejecting Saul, but he just really withdrew from Saul because Saul's tied God's hand by not wanting him to work in his life. And so God leaves Saul a captive unto himself. A captive to his own insecurities, to his own rebellions, to his own fears. And so Saul spends, look at this, he spends about the next 20 years of his life and he's resenting the lost opportunity that he had. And as a, 
as a result of that, then, follow with me, then he is also resenting that David took advantage of the very same opportunity. You know what happens to unhappy people? They don't like anybody else to be happy. That if they failed in the episode, they can't stand it to see if someone else succeeded. Why? Because that points out what, how they reacted to it themselves. I hope, I hope I'm not speaking around the old mulberry bush. I hope I'm, uh, I'm relaying uh, well enough and articulating well enough what I'm talking about here. In other words, 20 years, he said, man, I regret that I didn't, you know, maybe do things differently. But I can't stand it that David did what I should have done. And you know what that really paints? Just another picture where Saul was captive. Huh? Because the sex success of another in what he should have been successful in, now he's held captive by what someone else is doing in their life. Saul, get it right back here. Get it right back here. Uh-huh. Someone hear me today? In other words, are we going to live our lives? Okay, I was unsuccessful then. That person is successful. That makes me really mad, resentful, and regretful. And so I'm just going to stay right here and pout. So there's just no hope. I just might as well keep in this line of direction that I'm going. And we paint our box of hopelessness. That here comes the big wordage. This is just who I am. Huh? You don't have to be that way. But you got to have the hands of the master come back in your life. And allow him to pick up his tools and instrumentation of whatever he chooses. And whatever you perceive as good or bad and allow him to start doing some chiseling again. Because he can bring something out of that that has no form, no outlook. He can bring some form, definition out of that that you thought was never even there. If you allow him just to pick up his tools again and re-enter into your life. Here's the thing. It's not that no work has been done in some of our lives. It's just that the work isn't complete yet. Here's the fact of the matter. I don't think among us there are any Michelangelo's Davids, but we're all just captives in process. Someone say amen. And so in the end result, God doesn't destroy Saul. Saul destroys Saul. Now, you thought when the chiseling process was going, man, God's taking me down. He don't love me. He don't care for me. He da 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 But in reality, by refusing that, we have given ourselves over to a greater destruction, and that's self-destruction. In A.D. 1464, members of an influential Italian guild contracted with a sculptor named Agostino di Ducio to create a sculpture of David for the cathedral of Santa Marie de Flore. A massive block of marble was provided for from a quarry in northern Tus Tuscany, and the work began. However, Gustino only got as far as beginning to shape the legs, feet, and torso before abandoning the project. The block of marble remained essentially neglected for more than 35 years. All the while, it was exposed to the elements outside of the cathedral. In AD 1500, an inventory of the cathedral property described the piece as a certain figure of marble called David, badly blocked out. It seemed that David was destined to join the ranks of unfinished captive statues forever. But then in AD 1501, this 18-foot block of stone which this, the, the citizens of that area just simply called the giant, was raised on its feet, and a search was begun to earnestly find an artist who could take this large piece of marble and turn it into a finished work of art. And although Leonardo da Vinci and other master artists were consulted, it was Michelangelo, who at the time was only 26 years old, who convinced the officials that he deserved the commission. And so on August the 16th of 1501, Michelangelo was given the official contract to undertake this challenge 
challenging new tasks, and he began carving the statue just a few weeks later. His first task, it is documented, that on September the 9th of 1501, he knocked off a certain knot that previous sculptors had seen as a fatal flaw in the marble, the original material. But Michelangelo saw how the defect could be removed to allow the beauty of the underneath marble to show through if only a master artist applied his tools of hammer and chisel. And so Michelangelo worked on this massive biblical hero for more than two years, chiseling as it would seem this worthless stone that they, society seen it into a considerable greatest statue ever sculpted by human hands. Because Michelangelo saw something that others did not. He called it the image of the heart. This is something that he, many people commonly say concerning him. All he had to do was remove the excess stone so David could escape. He didn't see what it was. He saw what it could be, a masterpiece. And this morning, that is how God sees us. He just removes what is unnecessary. Amen? He just removes what is unnecessary to expose what is really there. That's the reason why I said whenever salvation happens, God is trying to, the, the resurrection from there, he's trying to restore us back to what humanity was before sin came in and marred the picture. He's just trying to remove the excess, if you will, the excess. Amen. And if you were go this morning, whenever I start talking about the captives that lined the side of that colonnade on the way to David's Michelangelo, they're few and far between. Some people don't never even heard of the captives. But by and large, most people have heard of David's Michelangelo. Because that just goes to show that we wrap our minds around finished works more than unfinished works. And what's talked about and what's undergirded and what's showcased are finished works. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 and verse 10, For we, speaking of us concerning our God, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Remember I said earlier, we had to be introduced to Saul before we could be introduced to David. They were, different, they were different in many ways. Almost in every area of comparison, there was difference between Saul and between David. Amen. But in, as a matter of fact, if you'd start to look at him, you'd think, man, Saul has the upper hand here. This, I mean, you know, he's heads and shoulders above everybody. And when you start to look at him, maybe he has some advantages in some of these comparisons. But the final analysis is this. There was one difference that mattered between Saul and between David, and that is who allowed and who didn't allow the master to continue his work in their life. I am convinced that over the history of being raised in the church that many of those that have fallen along the sidelines, backslid and so on and so forth, it's not that they were hopeless cases. But they are just works that left prematurely. I am convinced there are several, and I could probably name some, that if they were still here today, they would be very much like other people I could name and see it work in the kingdom of God. The only difference, concretely, that there was is one allowed the master to work and one didn't. Now, by their own human evaluation, they could probably come up with a greater list. Well, this is why, or that is why, because we're, we're, we're not only our worst critics, sometimes we're our, our biggest fans, so it goes both directions sometimes. You either think a whole lot about yourself or you think less than yourself and what you should. But with that being said, the, the ultimate thing, you, you could have given probably Michelangelo any piece of marble in any type of condition. He could have came forth with some type of image that would have still been revered as spectacular. Because it wasn't so much in the material as, it, as much as it was in the master. And so walk in here this morning with the raw material that you have in your life. Walk in here this morning with whatever past and, 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 and whatever baggage we might call it, off times call it. Walk in with whatever that may be. It is not, it is not, 
left up to what you bring that matters in how you will be. It's not what you bring. It's not what you bring that's going to determine what, what, what you're going to be. It's what the master can do with the raw material of your life. And the thing is, your material isn't like my material. But that doesn't make me or you any greater or lesser as a result of that. It's how we subject ourselves to the hands of the master. The Bible says in 2 Samuel 1 and verse 5, And David said unto the young man that told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan his son be dead? The young man that told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me, and I answered, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said unto me, Stand, again stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me, for anguish has come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him, because I was sure that he could not live after he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was upon his arm have brought them hither unto my Lord. Now, here we go, folks. This is a, a car, another one of those principles of truth that's in God's word that we oftentimes talk about. So here is now an Amalekite standing on Saul, and Saul's requesting that this Amalekite would take his life. Formerly, God had commanded, instructed, Saul utterly destroy the Amalekites. But by partial obedience, if there is such a thing, which we say there is not, because of all this, now later in life, the very thing, the very thing he refused to kill is now going to kill him. All right? Now, here's the thing. We're all unique here this morning. I know this is maybe different teaching for me, but this is okay. We're all different here this morning. We really are. Uh, there's, with great reason, the Bible tells us not to measure ourselves by ourselves, that that's not wise, because there's none of us that are identical. Even if you're identical twins, you still have some differences. As a matter of fact, you, you, remember, you remember high school biology? Someone says, when was high school? <laughs> I went to high school. If you remember that, you have 46 chromosomes. You remember biology? 23 are from your father. 23 are from your mother. And so there's a very unique combination of chromosomes that come together that determines your eye color, the number of hairs on your head. I could have used a few more chromosomes to help me out. <laughs> Amen, that's right. So part of your identity comes from your heredity. And so, and this is just interesting to me, maybe not to you, but the mathematical probability that you would get the exact 23 chromosomes you got from your father is 0.5 to the 23rd power. Folks, that's like one in a million that you would get the chromosomes that you got from your father, one in a million. But the same is true then for the 2033 chromosomes that you got from your mother. So if you multiply those two together, the probability that you would be you is one in a trillion. One in 100 trillion. Look how unique you are. You, know, you, you need to get you a shirt, Nate. It says, I'm one in 100 trillion. You're so very unique. And so, so, so you have all this, but then, uh, I don't have the math for this, but if you start factoring in, though, then that your parents had that same probability that was from their parents, and they had that same probability from their parents, it gets very, very muddy. You are definitely, folks, very, very unique. You're not a cheap imitation of somebody else. You've been uniquely made by God. So the fact of the matter is David couldn't be Saul, but neither could Saul be David. So why are we trying to be somebody that we're not? There's more than one reason why whenever David stood before Saul and said, you know what, I think I can take Goliath. I'm, ta I'm taking. I'm taking. And then Saul, looks what, look what he tries to impose upon David. Here's my armor. David says, no, I can't, I can't take these things. Not only have I not proved them, let me just say it like this. That's not me. I don't know what the outcome would have been, but what would have been the outcome if David tried to go in Saul's armor and fight the battle? 
My estimation is this. He would not have been successful because he wouldn't be true to himself. Is this all right? I think some of our frustrations in church life is that we're trying to fight some of our own personal battles the way that someone else has fought them. And I'm all for getting wisdom from this one and that one. But you know the fact of the matter, you are you. And I am me. And God can equip us with the tools that you as you need in order to be successful in this battle or even in the life of a Christian. So don't frustrate your matters and suffer defeat by trying doing it like someone else did it. That might not work for you. Someone say Amen. So David couldn't fight the enemy like Saul would. David had never used a sword or a coat of mail. Matter of fact, he probably put himself in greater danger if he went out to Goliath and those type of things. What he was accustomed to was a slingshot, shepherd's bag, and a staff. And you know what's great about that? He knew that's what he was accustomed to. We need to learn ourselves. Amen. We need to learn ourselves. So he made a choice that would forever determine his destiny. Listen to me. Whenever he just chose to be himself in God. Amen. And so what we do sometimes is we try to compensate. Now, I'm trying to be, it's already 1130, isn't it? Well, God bless me. Someone was watching. Dixie, you was watching the clock. You laughed at the loudest. Just give me just a little bit more time here, and I'll close. Around the turn of the 20th century, there was a psychologist. His name was Alfred Adler. He proposed this theory of compensation. He, he believed that perceived disadvantages often proved to be disguised advantages because they force us to develop attitudes and abilities that would otherwise gone undiscovered. Meaning that it's only as we compensate for those disadvantages that our greatest gifts are truly revealed. With that being said, 70% of the art students that Adler studied had optical anomalies, but he observed that some of history's greatest composers, such as Mozart, Beethoven, among them, had degenerative traces in their ears. So what he cited was this, is that through all these different vocations, those who leveraged their weaknesses by discovering new strengths were very successful. He concluded and perceived that disadvantages, perceived disadvantages such as birth defects, physical ailments, poverty, can be springboards to success. In other words, success is not achieved in spite of those perceived disadvantages, but because of them. And so there's a lot of credibility that's been given to this. In one study of small business owners, for example, 35% of them who were identified as, as dyslexic had, grew to become small business owners. Now, I know none of us would want our children, and if your child has suffered that, I understand but none would just wish upon your child, boy, I hope you're dyslexic someday. Because of what the frustration that's going to yield to them in learning and adapting and so on and so forth. But through this, through them having dyslexia, these children, because of that academic handicap they, 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 that comes with all of that, that disadvantage forced them, this group that became entrepreneurs, it forced them to cultivate different skill sets that they would not have otherwise done had it not been for the disability. Some of them became more proficient orally through oral communication because of reading being so difficult to them. And so they compensated for what was a weakness and it brought a great, great strength in their life. See, what I'm saying is some, some things that we count as an advantage in our life that we perceive even as some of our greatest advantages in our life really might not be our greatest advantages. Our greatest advantages that some of us have in our life might be hidden in some of our greatest disadvantages. Because if we'll learn to leverage on them, mm -hmm, 
Let me say it like this. Some people's past, they can only look at with eyes of negativity. Mm -hmm. Difficulty would rather just suppress the memory of it all. But in reality, that has brought you to be who you are right now. Amen. Amen. And so while we're trying to scrub our past, our past has made us who we are right now. And here's the thing. Who and what you went through and where you are right now is no surprise to God. I'm going to stand before we get in for Just stand with me. Paul has a thorn in the flesh. He has three times. God, remove it. God says, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so it's a game changer for Paul. It's a game changer for God, Paul. Because then he says, most gladly, therefore. As a result of that, he says. He said, I'd rather glory in my infirmities. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. I take pleasure in them. You know what Paul came to a place to identify? I'm not going to take this thing that I perceive as a disadvantage to be just that. But I'm going to leverage and compensate. Uh huh. And I'm going to have some things that are going to be noteworthy as a result of what I perceive as a disadvantage in my life. And that is, that is the, the wonder of God. He can take the things that we perceive as disadvantages and leverage off them and compensate for them. And what you thought was really to your teardown, he can use all things together for your good. Is it easy? Not always. Can it be done? Yes. By myself? No. But if you keep the hands of the master constantly working in your life, he can bring the captive out of the stone. And true freedom on an emotional level, spiritual level, and even a physical level. If we can just bow our heads in this place. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.